0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview.
1: Technology and social media have given all of us the ability to publish our thoughts and ideas. Today, we'll take a look at how that has affected the freedom of press, if at all, and the line between newsworthiness and privacy. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Professor Amy Guida of Tulane Law School and a nationally recognized, globally recognized expert on media law. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: What an interesting topic at such a bizarre time for the media. What does it mean to be media these days?
0: The way I think that media has changed is that in the olden days, there used to be a several layered review before ultimate publication. And you're
1: speaking from experience. You have a number of years as a journalist under your belt.
0: That's right. And so there would always be someone in the newsroom who you could bounce ideas off of. So would this be potentially defamatory? Would this conceivably invade someone's privacy? Might there be some sort of legal problem with it or ethical problem? Because anyone is capable of publishing, that means that in the press of a button, suddenly information can go global. What's happening then is that the law is coming in and taking a second look at publications and reining in, I think at least in some sense, Publications today, especially on the internet.
1: You were a news anchor in the 90s?
0: That's right, mostly in the 80s. So, 80s 80s into the 90s. Could you have
1: imagined that millions of people would be publishing? No, uh, it is extraordinary. (laughs)
0: No, it is. It's a very interesting time. And I, I was thinking to myself, what is the way that this is somewhat related to the way it used to be? And I guess if you, people who wrote things on bathroom walls when People were in high school. You know, it's that sort of revelation of information. The graffiti artist Exactly as right. As but now suddenly it takes place on the Internet. And I think that's why you have this response from courts.
1: Well, yeah, you mentioned courts. So why don't we just jump into the, sure. the legal side? When we think of press freedoms or I guess it all traces back to the First Amendment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. The First Amendment protects the press's ability to report.
0: That's right to a certain extent. And so therefore, even though we have freedom of the press, and even though that is one of the First Amendment freedoms that most people in the United States know and understand, they don't understand it fully. So they believe uh, that, in fact, freedom of the press means the freedom to publish anything truthful. I think we learn about defamation pretty early on, so I think people understand that if they publish something that is incorrect, that harms another person's reputation, uh, they can, in fact, face a lawsuit for that. But we, we hear so much, I think, about freedom of the press, and we hear so much about the importance of truth, that it's very difficult for people to understand, that in, and even very learned people to understand, that in fact there is a limitation on um, what is truthful and, and publishable.
1: That resonates with me because when I think of cases in the news where there's been press overreach, it usually involves defamation, slander, or libel. And in those cases, truth is a defense. Truth is a protection for the media that covered the issue. What you're talking about is something different, which is when press actually oversteps into what we as a as a country consider private.
0: That's exactly right, or at least what one judge considers private or one jury considers private. So collectively, we may decide, meh, that's not exactly private information. Uh, But if you can convince one judge conceivably or one jury that the information is private, then in fact, there can be a verdict or um, a decision or some sort of negotiation in favor then of the plaintiff in an invasion of privacy case, even against um, mainstream media.
1: So is this just a a shifting perspective or is this, you know, I'm imagining Hamilton writing a paper on what's newsworthy?
0: Well, it's something that has been around. It's an idea that's been around and, and actually did start in the 1700s through the 1800s. But 1890 was a very important time for privacy because that's when Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis wrote a law review article titled The Right to Privacy. And that law review article was written because Samuel Warren's family was covered by the media. And he would say The issue issue was uh, mostly his. Uh, what he felt were his uh, personal family goings on. So for example, dinner parties that he hosted, he was famous because he had married the daughter of the Secretary of State under Grover Cleveland. And so when he wrote the right to privacy with his law partner, Louis Brandeis, who became a Supreme Court justice, he was then motivated, I think nearly solely by Press attention. So if you read this article from 1890, you can tell that his motivation is very much anti-media. And so it was really in 1890 that things truly began to turn. And then in the 1920s, 1930s, there were some decisions against uh, media and in favor of media and privacy cases. And then the pendulum really turned toward protection of the press after New York Times versus Sullivan, both in a defamation sense, and then also in a right to privacy sense.
1: You mentioned a couple of milestones. There's the New York Times case that was the Pentagon Papers case.
0: No, New York Times versus Sullivan is a defamation case from well, um, from the 1960s. That one down first. Sure. Well, it doesn't. It's the important thing for um, New York Times versus Sullivan is that it gave media protection in defamation cases. Because of that, because of that sort of level of protection in the mid 1960s, courts started being uniformly more deferential toward media.
1: When I think about some of the shifts in the way media covers both public figures and individual citizens, I think of presidents. So nowadays, if a president sneezes, it's in the news, but we weren't really even hearing about dramatic sexual liaisons of presidents before Kennedy or uh
0: and we didn't really hear about Kennedy. <laughs> we didn't really the hear time. about it until afterwards. Yes, yeah. that's right. And I think the reason why is that there always was number one, sort of this unique relationship between the media that covered the president and the president uh, himself. And media, I think, was almost hesitant to step into that area that it believed was off limits. That it was, in fact, private information to reveal anything about a president's liaisons and that's because number one i guess there's an unwritten code uh, among journalists if you ask journalists even today is the fact that a politician is having an affair is that newsworthy most journalists will say no unless there's some newsworthy reason, unless he has or she campaigned on family values or some such thing. And so there was always this hesitation to talk about a president's private life in that way. There are ethics codes that journalists must abide by or are supposed to abide by. Uh, And and so therefore there's a real protection for privacy in ethics codes in journalism as well.
1: Was there also another reason? Was it, you know, you mentioned how there was almost a personal relationship between the president and his press corps. Mm -hmm. Was the fact that this was such a small and intimate circle, did that create more protections?
0: I think it probably did. So I think that the friendlier you are with your source, the more you want to protect that source. But I've seen journalists who are covering members of Congress, they don't even particularly like but they don't want to report on that member's uh, family troubles because they don't believe that the information is newsworthy. And so there's this real clash, I think, between what the public might think the media thinks or journalists think is newsworthy and what journalists really believe is newsworthy and that's what's so fascinating, about the fascinating. Law as well yeah. yeah because um because now we have judges coming in and certainly juries coming in and deciding issues like newsworthiness
1: i guess before we jump into what is newsworthy why does it matter so where does the newsworthiness sure. equation play in in the courts
0: sure so there is a tort called publication of private facts and what it does is it allows plaintiffs to win if information that is published about them is private, is highly offensive, and is not of legitimate public concern. It has and to
1: be offensive to whom?
0: has to be highly offensive within the community. So information that Right thinking members of the community would find highly offensive. Give me an that, example. So, for example, um, traditionally in the United States, sexual information has been protected as private. It's highly offensive generally to have sexual information revealed about someone. Nudity is the same way. So, nudity has been traditionally protected in the United States, and courts generally will decide it's highly offensive to have nude information or nude photos of someone published without their permission, the same way with sexual information.
1: With the nude photos, I can't help but think of British royals summering on sure. some island. Sure. Is that what you described? Is that beyond the pale?
0: Well, that, that is actually a very interesting question because the publication of private facts tort, legal wrong suggests that the information that's published must be private. And so some of the argument is that, at least on the defense side, if you're out in public, can it really be private? And courts today are swinging more toward uh, the idea that there is, in fact, privacy in a public space. And so therefore, even in 1977, which is when the restatement was written, and that is, I'm sure all lawyers would know, but but that then is sort of an encyclopedia, dictionary almost of the law uh, in the United States. It's where a
1: bunch of smart lawyers get together and make a suggestion of right, what should decide, be the standard. Exactly,
0: decide what the law should be in the United States, and then courts readily, um, many states, especially in privacy have accepted um, these principles as the law in in a particular jurisdiction. But I can tell you that even in 1977, when the restatement was written, those restatement authors suggested that the use of technology to see someone who is in public. So in other words, the the restatement authors say- These
1: were some forward thinking uh, women and men.
0: Yes and no because they suggested that the use of binoculars to appear <laughs> into a second-story uh, window then... So they
1: weren't thinking of drones and no, satellites. exactly,
0: and... right. But they were thinking about binoculars, and so they suggested that the use of technology to see something that you would not... Would otherwise be invisible to the naked eye, can in fact then be an invasion of privacy. So in that sense, even though we think we know what is, you know, what is private, um, and we assume that something that is in public is then not private, that's actually incorrect.
1: Were they imagining you know, your, your backyard? Were they imagining- Sure. Uh, and open a window that happened to be unshuttered?
0: That's exactly right. So the restatement authors suggest if you're walking by, you would not be able to see what's happening on the second story window, but you use binoculars to peer in, that can be an invasion of privacy. So so your question, I guess, about the island then, suggests that if a camera person is using a long-range lens and can, in fact, bring that person then who is nude on an island and doesn't believe anyone else is around can bring that person into uh, crispness then in fact, arguably that could be an invasion of privacy, even though that person is out in public
1: let's uh let's take it even a little bit more personally we're sitting in Manhattan right now sure. there's a lot of skyrise there's tall buildings sometimes there's this feeling that we're that no one can see us, but
0: that's right. It's very
1: possible that you know one of the neighboring buildings, someone has one of these telescopic lenses. And
0: in fact, that actually happened. So there is a famous case in New York just decided within the past five years involving a professional uh, photographer who took images of his uh, neighbors and then published those pictures in a series of art photographs called The Neighbors. The neighbors wow. sued for invasion of privacy. But because New York law, does not recognize publication of private facts or intrusion into seclusion. New York law is very specific and only looks at misappropriation, the misuse of someone's identity, and allows plaintiffs to win in that way. Those plaintiffs failed, so they were unable to convince a court to decide uh, in their favor, even though it involved a long-range lens and even though it captured um, some arguably private moments. Parents playing with children, for example, intimate moment at a a breakfast table, um, those sorts of things. And there was a suggestion- Cautionary
1: tale here for New Yorkers. That's
0: exactly right. And there was a suggestion then that perhaps uh, New York law might change someday, but that hasn't happened yet.
1: But in another jurisdiction in California or Texas? Absolutely. Might be different Absolutely.
0: That's exactly right. And in fact, you do get some interesting cases involving um, successful privacy claims, even though the plaintiff is in public.
1: So newsworthiness is the is the meat and potatoes, I guess, of this tort, this lawsuit publication of private facts.
0: Right, the plaintiff has to prove that the information is in fact private, uh, that the information, if revealed, would be highly offensive to a reasonable person, and then also that the information is not newsworthy. So if we think of newsworthiness, newsworthiness is really a defense to A publication of private facts claim. If the media or if a publisher can prove that the information is in fact newsworthy, uh, then the claim is invalid. Let
1: me think about it from the privacy-loving citizen perspective. Mm -hmm. Is that my only protection against publications that may be true, but personal for me to want shared
0: well yes i mean that is ultimately the main tort for invasion of privacy but there are other torts that are related including something called intrusion into seclusion and so that would involve um, something that wasn't published it's someone i generally tell my classes that this is the classic peeping tom sort of scenario when someone puts a hidden camera into a public bathroom, for example, or a private bathroom, and record someone. That's a classic intrusion and exclusion case. Uh, And then the third tort that comes to mind and that is often brought in conjunction with publication of private facts is something called intentional infliction of emotional distress. So
1: that's Uh, where you're doing something that's so outrageous
0: that it,
1: you should know that it's going to harm them emotionally.
0: Exactly right. And so and and negligent infliction is also another one that can be brought. Uh, And so these ideas then often go in conjunction with each other. uh, And oftentimes plaintiff's attorneys will bring all of those claims together against uh, one publisher. Again, not necessarily media. It could be one individual person who's published something on Facebook, for example.
1: I guess this is one of the, the other amazing shifts we've seen Uh, when it comes to publication, which is this new paradigm where we're all constantly publishing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but are you on are you on social media? Uh,
0: no, I'm not, not because I'm on, a privacy not even, professor. Not even on Twitter. No, I'm wow. not on Twitter. Uh,
1: Imagine uh, all the followers you could have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I might shift. Uh, I might shift at some point. But it's interesting to go to a privacy conference. Most of the privacy law professors are not on social media, which is fascinating. So we had maybe we that's had a worries. sign
1: to all of you out there. <laughs> if the experts aren't doing it,
0: and we did have worries very early on about sharing of information and what information might come back, this notion of, you know, the right to be forgotten and um, and those sorts of things.
1: So why don't we jump into newsworthiness. What does it mean?
0: So I think if you asked a journalist, a journalist would say that something is newsworthy. If it's something that the public would be interested in, Something that Wow, well,
1: my brain's already confused because sure. no, the that's public exactly is interested right. in such weird things. That's exactly
0: right. But what happens is journalists temper that public interest with notions of privacy. So within ethics codes, for example, the ethics codes will say that everyone uh, is deserving of some level of privacy. So that even if the public would, in fact, be interested in uh, a politician's affair, outside of of marriage. Many journalists won't report it unless they find it newsworthy, even though the public would in fact be very interested uh, in that. So generally speaking,
1: someone's sex life is not newsworthy, unless there's an additional reason. So as you mentioned, if-
0: I would say in a journalistic sense, right? So in a journalistic sense, traditionally, sex lives are off the table traditionally.
1: What about financial situation?
0: Financial information is also a very interesting area. So I would say that it used to be that financial information was also treated as very private. Today, we have more of a shift, culturally, uh, toward more open discussion of finances and how much people make. Uh, But interestingly, in the 1977 restatement, there is the suggestion that income tax uh, information is, in fact, private. uh, Mm -hmm. Because it's not public information. It's held by the government. So in that sense, there is some protection for financial information as well. And I mean that in a legal sense. So I think the public looks at newsworthiness in one way, anything it's interested in. The media looks at newsworthiness in a different way, which is tempered by um, ethics codes. And then the law looks at it in, in a third uh, way, in um, in a more restrictive way of what, of what is newsworthy. More expansive, let's say, definition for newsworthiness. More expansive, I think, than journalism ethics codes are.
1: So I guess, To restate what you're saying, the journalists may be keeping themselves to a higher standard, or traditional journalists?
0: That's exactly right. So even though they would be, I believe, not liable for publishing information about a politician's extramarital affair, they would not publish it unless they found it newsworthy in some way. So they wouldn't be liable in a legal sense for publishing it but ethically they may feel restraint and not publish that information.
1: It must create an interesting tension now with, at at a time news channels were kind of lost leaders, they weren't seen as necessarily needing certain amount of clicks. Now a lot of even big companies look to their news departments to make some money.
0: That's exactly right. And so now you do have more of a tension, I think, as mainstream media tries to keep up with what local bloggers and others are doing. And so in that sense, I think you've seen more of a a shift toward more privacy invading, what I think traditionally would be considered um, privacy invading information, uh, being published even by mainstream media today.
1: And now for those who are listening for MC Lee Credit, the code is 51215. Again, that's 51215. And now back to the interview. Let's delve a little deeper into newsworthiness. What's, give, me, give me a weird example that I could share with the audience.
0: So as you know, the uh, Hulk Hogan case then was a lawsuit brought by a professional wrestler, Hulk Hogan. One of
1: the most fascinating cases of our time.
0: Yeah, either. I think that's right. So what happened in the Hulk Hogan case, and what, what's very interesting for me as someone who's been teaching privacy now for 20 years, is that I literally said to my students, there will be a website that will publish a sex tape of a celebrity and claim that it's newsworthy. That's going to happen someday. And so when Gawker published the video of Hulk Hogan, one of my students then forwarded um, it to you, and, you called it to it. Me <laughs> and said, Yes, and take a look at this. So I was able to see the video. What happened was Gawker came into possession of a videotape featuring professional wrestler Hulk Hogan uh, having sex with a woman. And Hulk Hogan apparently asked Gawker to take this video down. Uh, Gawker refused, and so Hulk Hogan
1: sued. Did Gawker um, purchase the video, or was it just I don't sent know.
0: To them? So I don't know what happened. Okay. I believe that they knew who had sent it to them, but but I don't know um, the specifics in that way. So Gawker then publishes the tape, and Hulk Hogan uh, brings this claim then for, among other things, a publication of private facts. So arguing that exactly
1: the tort that is determined by newsworthiness.
0: Exactly right. So arguing that, in fact, this is private information. This took place in a bedroom uh, with a hidden camera. So let me suggest something, though, that that I think is important and that a lot of people misunderstand. I believe that the video taken in the Hulk Hogan case, that Hulk Hogan did not know he was being videotaped. This would not matter. So in other words, even if Hulk Hogan knew he even was videotaping, Even if he's at the
1: camera. Exactly.
0: If he is nude and he believes that the tape is not going to be published, he has a right to privacy in that tape. So whether or not he knows really doesn't make any difference in a publication of private facts sense, unless he has agreed to have that tape published. So he argues, therefore, that the information is private that it's highly offensive to a reasonable member of the public which
1: as you were saying earlier mm-hmm. sexual material is generally put in that basket as
0: is nudity and so as he is, is also graphically nude um, in the videotape so um so it would be highly offensive then to have this information uh, published and then third uh he argued that the information was not newsworthy was not of legitimate concern to the public what gawker argued in response was that, number one, millions of people had looked at the videotape, and so that meant that it was a public concern and of interest. So
1: newsworthiness by by clicks.
0: Yes, newsworthiness by clicks, which is a very interesting argument. And also that because Hulk Hogan himself had talked about his sex life on The Howard Stern Show and otherwise, uh, that that then made this particular graphic tape then all the more
1: newsworthy. This was him talking about his prowess or... You know, the size of his genitalia. Yes,
0: that's right. So, so whatever he talked about then on these radio programs, that was why Gawker then made the argument that they got to show this sex tape. And as you know, this didn't fly uh, in front of a jury. And the jury awarded, I think, 130, 140 million to Hulk Hogan. The case eventually uh, settled
1: and led to the bankruptcy of the newspaper.
0: That's exactly right.
1: And we're we're talking about him as Hulk Hogan because we're. I don't want to speak for you, but are, are you a wrestling expert?
0: No, but I used to watch it in high school.
1: <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen some some Smackdowns and some some wrestling as well. But so I didn't know his real name before the case. Yes. And it's Terry Bollea. Terry Bollea. Mm-hmm. So does he make the argument that this wasn't Hulk Hogan having sex? This was Terry Bollea having sex.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. So that's part of the argument. Now again. Uh, speaking from a purely scholarly privacy perspective, I don't think that mattered. I think it was a way to then bring it in front of the jury and have the jury understand it. But even if it were an actor who is in nude, has agreed to be nude in a movie in a particular way, if someone takes video of that, that, that nudity, and publishes it on the internet, that actor then could bring a claim against the publisher as well. So there's just something special about nudity. There's something special about um, sex acts uh, in the law. And those things have been traditionally protected. And so therefore, I don't think that really would have made much of a difference. I think it was more a jury that tried to get the jury to understand that we're talking about a person here. We're not talking about uh, a character who may have spoken himself about um, sexual acts I prowess. do think
1: that still resonates with most of us, that there are certain intimate activities that we just really don't want published.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and even in uh, the 1980s, when a lot of privacy cases were being won by media and a lot of plaintiffs were, were losing, uh, what courts would traditionally say is there are some areas that are off limits, and they would suggest sexual information, nudity, and they'd also suggest bathroom activities in addition to some of those things that are off limits.
1: Could it be different if Hulk Hogan had been in the the adult film industry and had worked in this space?
0: So, so tr- again, there haven't been that many cases out there, uh, but there is at least one case that I can think of where that was the argument. So this was a woman who'd traditionally been nude in film and otherwise, and a, a sex tape featuring her was released. The argument was, you have no right to privacy in your body. Your body is published everywhere. Uh, And the court decided that, in fact, she did have a right to privacy in her body uh, and had the ability then to decide when something is published and when something is not.
1: Which seems also intuitive that, you know, if you're, I don't want to get into this too much. but, But, you know, it even seems to make sense for someone who intentionally leaks a sex tape that that's a different act than having someone publish something that wasn't intended.
0: Right. And, and if in fact it were a leak like that, then the person would find it very difficult to claim a privacy action after that, because that person is actually the one who put it into the public uh, space by releasing it uh, in that way. And so therefore, the information would no longer be private.
1: But does it all of a sudden become newsworthy?
0: No. Uh, And again, even if something is newsworthy in a a sense that the public would want to see it, that does not mean that it's then newsworthy in a legal sense. So, for example, Erin Andrews is a sportscaster and she was nude inside her hotel room. Uh, Someone removed the peephole from her hotel room door inserted a camera and was able to capture some images of her nude inside the hotel room. Uh, just that,
1: walking to the shower or brushing her teeth. Or, or just,
0: yeah, walking around. I've not seen that video. I have seen the Hulk Hogan video, but not, not <laughs> I, that I video. I won't follow up with, yeah. uh, <laughs>
1: with too many questions.
0: <laughs> but then among the claims that she brought against the person who put it on the internet was an invasion of privacy claim. So yes, this this sort of level of nudity is protected.
1: That also seems like that the example of, I forgot the name of the tour,
0: Oh, intrusion into seclusion, Yeah, exactly. It's an intrusion into seclusion claim, it's a publication of private facts claim, and it's also an intentional infliction of emotional distress, or at least a negligent infliction of emotional distress. And her case, I believe, came down right before the Hulk Hogan decision. And so therefore, it's interesting to think about if that jury had waited and decided after the Hulk Hogan case, whether Hulk Hogan would have necessarily got the amount in damages that he did. So Erin Andrews, I can't remember how much she got, but she got a lot of money from that man. And then also the Hulk Hogan case uh, came down, I think six weeks later. I think it was heard by the jury six weeks later, something like that. So it may have three, had an effect. Yes, conceivably, right. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.